One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, that was an interesting weekend, wasn't it? A leader of the free world was admitted to hospital amid claims that he was going to have a Boris Johnson experience after confessing that he and the First Lady had tested positive for COVID-19. But after just two days of treatment, Donald Trump could be sent home to the White House as early as today. And now the lefties are obsessing about a trip he took in a presidential motorcade to wave to his fans gathering outside the Walter Reed Medical Centre in Maryland. By the way, in a hermetically sealed car which is designed to fight off chemical weapons attacks. I've got a couple of questions for those saying he put the lives of the Secret Service in danger because they were travelling in a car with him. First of all, they were all wearing masks. So how were they in danger? That's question one. Question two, and if they were in danger, then that must mean that masks are useless against the virus, right? So why are we all being told to wear masks if when you wear masks, you are still in danger? What would be the point of that? Worst of all, of course, the lefties were those wishing Donald Trump ill. Stars of stage and screen, former Hillary Clinton spokespeople, truly shocking and disgraceful. Dominic West, who I once thought of as a pretty good actor and was amazing in a show called The Wire, really ought to close himself down. Never mind closing down your Twitter account, mate. Why don't you just go and live uh, in a Caribbean island somewhere and don't talk to anybody for the rest of your life? Coming up this morning, we'll be asking this question. Has Boris pulled his reputation back from the brink after a weekend of TV appearances and newspaper interviews? He said he knows everyone hates him and that he wants them all to practice common sense. Well, that's two things he's got right for the first time in a while. Where have we heard that before? And what is going on with all these test and trace glitches? A glitch, by the way, uh, is when something goes wrong which slightly makes a difference to what it was that you were planning to do. Not when something which is meant to test and track and trace actually fails completely. That's not a glitch. That's a massive problem. 0344 499 1000. First up, we'll get the views of Andrew Bridge and MP. Then Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens joins us. And I've got a feeling he's going to be a bit less impressed with the Prime Minister's charm offensive. 0344 499 1000. Later on, Chancellor Rishi Sunak will address the Tory party faithful with a message of hope for the future of the economy, which is facing, we are told, a possible three-tier lockdown coming soon, which could finish off the hospitality business once and for all. And even if you're not a football fan, I'm just going to mention this. Liverpool lost 7-2 to Aston Villa. (laughs) Sorry, that just made me laugh. I don't know why. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's been a fair amount of Boris-isms to uh, contemplate and to take in over the course of the weekend. He gave interviews to Andrew Marr, he gave interviews to ITV, he did a big interview with the Mail on Sunday. There's a book out by Tom Bauer uh, about his family, going on about his father Stanley. There's an awful lot of Boris news around at the moment. Boris, of course, himself has said uh, that he is as fit as several butchers' dogs. Well, he doesn't look it, so I think that's probably the first uh, lie that he's told. But... Has he drawn his uh, sort of considerably damaged reputation back from the brink slightly by at least admitting that he realises people don't find him very popular at the moment, that people now look at Boris Johnson and don't like him and are very disappointed with him? Let's talk to Andy Bridgen, uh, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, a man who has in the past been critical uh, of leaders of the Conservative Party. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean... I don't really know where to start, um, but I'm going to start with Boris's interview in which he said, look, I realise people hate me. I realise people hate what we're having to do. Do you think that's kind of going to help him a little bit? Yeah, because what you can tell with Boris is that Boris is a person person. That's the difference between some previous prime ministers uh, we've had. Boris came to 
my constituency uh, before the August bank holiday because uh, by uh, a strange quirk of fate that Leicestershire schools go back a week before everyone else in the country, but we break uh, for holidays a week before everyone else. And he came to uh, Castle Rock School and met the staff, the pupils. And what you can tell about Boris is Boris is a person person. He, he likes to be liked, he likes people, and uh, he enjoys that, that human interaction. And, and that's his great ability that he, uh, he brought to bear at the general election, which I know it's only, it's less than 12 months ago, but my goodness, it feels like about three years ago already. Uh, <laughs> I know. When you, he delivered the, the biggest Conservative majority we've had since 1983, and uh, I could see it coming. Yeah, and I mean, we're also told, uh, because we are in the week of this kind of rather bizarre virtual conference season uh, where you can watch people on TV, but you can't go and actually see them anywhere. Uh, we'll be hearing from Rishi Sunak later on. But we're also told that he's still relatively popular inside of the of the parliamentary party and inside of the party itself. Um, so he has to kind of position that, I suppose, with the way that the rest of the country is viewing him. I mean, I talk to a lot of people on this show, Andrew, who voted Tory for the first time and who are a bit disappointed with the way that Boris is dealing with this whole problem. Well, Boris has had, a, you know, he's been prime minister for about 14 months. Um, I don't think anyone's ever had uh, an initiation to being prime minister in the circumstances that Boris Johnson has had for a very, very long time. We had the, effectively a minority government in the run-up to last December's general election. We had the general election. We had a stonking Conservative majority and an endorsement once again that we need to get Brexit done. Uh, and we thought that we were going to be talking about Brexit for 12 months during the transition period. We had about six weeks of normality, I'd say. And then along comes COVID um, and everything else has been a bit of a whirlwind since then. I mean, this is something that's... Uh, causing disruption across the across the planet as we're we're seeing uh, it's unprecedented times and um, yeah if Boris could have seen this coming coming forward I bet I bet you Keir Starmer's very glad that he's the leader of the opposition at the moment and not uh, and not uh, the prime minister so he can just agree with everything the government does and then snipe at it later which uh, I think the public have seen through Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, but, you know, the less we talk about Keir Starmer, the better, really, because I haven't heard an idea coming from that man uh, since before Brexit and the referendum, because, I mean, every single idea he's got seems to have two prongs, uh, both at opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, he's got, he's got plenty of principles, and if you don't like those, you can, <laughs> he's got some more over here you can have a look at as well. No, um, exactly. I know he's switched out, and he wants to get Brexit done. There's a lot for the Prime Minister to do. We've got to get Brexit done. We've got to sort out covid um, and also, I think there's, a, there's an existential threat to the Conservative Party, which I'm going to raise, which, which I don't think people have appreciated yet. That For the last five years, Mike, if you've wanted to get Brexit done, you've really had to vote Conservative. And we've done very well out of that. Uh, on the 31st of December, when we do finally get Brexit done, get out of the transition period and take back all the powers that people wanted us to take back, we've got to ask yourself... Um, how are we going to persuade people to vote Conservative in the future? What's our new offering going to be? And it's got to be about the economy and jobs. And we've got to get the economy back up uh, to pre-COVID levels uh, as fast as possible. And that is a huge job. And mm. the only solace I can draw from that is that people know that when the country needs economic growth, you don't vote Labour. No, I think that's absolutely right. But there is a danger, of course, that, uh, that this kind of handling of the economy goes the wrong way because we're reading this morning that there could be some new three-tier lockdown. We saw a story last week, Andrew, and you'll know more about this than me probably because Leicester hasn't been involved in one of the lockdowns, the, the local lockdowns that we've seen. In 11 out of the 16 areas where local lockdowns have been imposed, the infection rate in COVID terms has actually doubled. So there's not really any great deal of evidence, it seems to me, that local lockdowns work. But the opposite of that, Mike, is... What would have happened if the lockdown hadn't come up? Would the virus uh, rate of infection have quadrupled? Um, and of course, you know, no city or urban area or any area that's in a lockdown is an island on this country. People work in different places, they travel, and uh, you know, these hotspots can quickly spread to a full-blown second wave of pandemic. The, the problem the government's got and why the messaging seems so complicated is they are so reluctant to bring in a nationwide uh, lockdown. That would be very straightforward. We just have one rule for everybody. You know what you've got to do. And this is just keep repeating the message. But for areas like mine, northwest Leicestershire, where they've, there's, there's low 
there's been very low uh, uh, incidence of, of virus transmission over the last couple of months. People have been very disciplined. I mean, I've fought very hard and spoken to the Prime Minister in Number 10 and said, look, it's not fair if areas that have abided by all the guidelines and the laws uh, are punished the same as, as everybody else when we've got a low incidence of the, uh, of the virus and we can keep the economy, economy moving. So that's why the messaging is complicated, because there are different rules for different parts of the country to avoid the need for another national lockdown, which would, would have a devastating effect on, uh, on, on, on uh, the economy. But as we know, when we did the first lockdown, um, it will suppress the uh, transmission of the virus. So it's, it's very much a balancing act to keep the economy going while suppressing the virus. I think what's, what's worrying for me, though, is the questions about the efficacy of the, uh, of the, the virus testing itself, which if, you've got, if you haven't got absolute confidence that the people you're testing and saying are positive are positive, that undermines people's confidence in, uh, and their uh, willingness to uh, go along with the quarantine rules. And without that, you know, you can, you can test as many people you want, but if the people who've actually got the virus don't quarantine, um, you're wasting your time, aren't you? Well, I mean, there's a lot of wasting of time going on. It seems to me that if you don't test people um, and then tell them what the results are for over a week, then they're going to be spreading whatever virus they may or may not have to lots of other people because they didn't even know um, that they tested positive. That's what we're looking at in the papers this morning. Secondly, uh, testing people uh, isn't always the answer because we keep being told there's no point testing people at airports because you only pick up 7% uh, of the virus that's coming back from a foreign place, but that doesn't seem to work if you're doing it uh, domestically. Then we get told that you know there might be false positives. Then we get told that actually hospital admissions are not particularly going up. You know, Meanwhile, there's a whole raft of uh, civil liberties infractions uh, being uh, being brought in uh, that you can you know only play music up to a level of 85 decibels you know you can get done for selling somebody a hamburger that you put salad on for four minutes after 10 o'clock I mean there's a lot of cobblers going on here isn't there there is and um, you know I, I raised my concerns last week as did a large number of colleagues by supporting the Brady amendment which would have required a parliamentary scrutiny and a vote before any further lockdown measures were brought in and part of that, I thought, would, would help the government on two prongs. Firstly, I don't think the British people, they don't, re, they don't respond very well to being ordered and pushed. I'm always a believer that you need to bring the people with you. Mm. And if you can't persuade elected representatives of the need for further draconian lockdown measures and, and, and quite severe punishments, you know, yeah. 10, 000, very 10, severe. 000, Fines. Do you know, by uh, the way, Andrew, do you know what happens to somebody who is given a £10,000 fine but who can't afford to pay it? What happens to them? Well, it'd be the same as anybody who can't afford to pay any other sort of fine. I'm, I, potentially, I imagine you could face a prison sentence if you don't pay uh, a fine. Yeah, but so, ones, uh, yeah, but most fining systems have, have, have an ability to appeal them. These ones don't, it would seem. Yeah, well, that's that's not not right either in a in a uh, elected democracy. So I was supportive of, of of Parliament having more scrutiny and a decision. And also, these are huge decisions the government are currently making. From very few people in cabinet will be making these decisions, which, which will have, I believe, a longer term effect on people's lives and their well being than than the virus itself will have. And because they're huge decisions, mm. surely it'd be better to spread that responsibility to the whole of parliament rather than just mm. a few individuals at the top of government and the obviously the answer they'll say is well we need to make decisions quick this virus is changing information's coming in well if we have to have emergency sittings of the house of commons to accommodate that i don't think any any colleagues are going to think that that's not uh, given the circumstances and how important these decisions are that that wasn't justified no quite and, and as far as the uh, the vote itself that then took place once the Brady amendment was uh, was shot down in flames as it were why did so few MPs then try to vote against the government well, I think to leave the government with no ability to uh, to take measures to uh, contain the virus would have been irresponsible and risks undermining the huge sacrifices that everybody has made to uh, to get to the position we are now but i mean it, it's worryingly it seems to have gone very quiet on the on the vaccine front which is the uh, obviously that was the great hope through the summer that by october we may have had a viable vaccine yeah 
I mean, the problem for me seems seems to be that, uh, you know, yes, people can talk about the virus being contained, but thus far, and in every country of the world that we look, apart from China, it would seem, but you never know whether you can believe anything that comes out of there, you know, the, it's impossible to stop the spread of the virus. You know, you can lock down as many times as you like, but every time uh, you reopen something, the, the, it spreads more. So surely it's the wrong approach to try and shut it down. Well, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, we opened... Schools have been open now for um, uh, more than for, for five month, weeks. Right? Yeah. yeah, five weeks in in, in Leicestershire, uh, and we haven't seen a huge increase in in, in the virus in in my constituency. So it, it can be done, um, but if you've got people who who are testing positive for the virus and then not self isolating, even when they've got a, not, not even just got the symptoms, they've actually got a positive, and one would presume that if they the only reason they went and took a test was they felt that they may have some symptoms. People, I think very few people are taking a test every week feeling fine. Mm. Um, so to do that, I mean, if, if as some of the figures seem to point out, 80% of people are not abiding by the quarantine rules, um, clearly we've got a problem. And the best way to, to do that is persuade people and take them. If, if the £10,000 fine is not working, what's going to work? I mean, we're going to imprison people who, who we can't. Well, you can't, can you? Um, you can't you can't do that and so you need you need to persuade the people and the easiest way to do that is to put everything to a vote in parliament persuade the electorate representatives have all the publicity around why these measures are specifically needed and for how long they're going to be uh, imposed and that persuades the people themselves it, it's very very difficult the, the british people will do not respond well to uh, rule by dictator no they really don't and also Boris... is where we, we are at the moment well exactly but also boris called for common sense at the weekend in one of the interviews that he gave and i of course call this show the home of common sense so i'm very familiar with common sense but what we don't well, see very much of from this government is common sense policy making you know because the rule of six we've been told was entirely arbitrary came pulled out of uh, the air uh, the idea of closing bars at 10 p.m complete and utter sort of uh, you know chuck a coin in the air and see what time you should want to shut the pub. You know, there's no signs going on there. And clearly also nobody sensible is saying to, to the government, look, there may well be an increase in infections, but if fewer people are being admitted to hospital and fewer people are dying, which is the case, then why are you not changing the policy? Well, I think I advocated common sense very early in the, uh, in the lockdown measures um, and got some criticism for it. Right. Ultimately, we, you know, we live in a complex society, or we certainly did before COVID, where we all have a lot of interactions on different levels with a lot of different people. We all, we all have complex lives and complex relationships. Um, ultimately, the government can't legislate how you should react in every single one of uh, and i don't want to live in a country where no. the government is telling me how i'm going to act in every single one of my interactions with everyone else people have got to use their common sense the reason that the guidelines and the laws and now huge punishments are there is to suppress the virus protect wider society and ourselves and people have got to take that responsibility themselves they, they know what they've got to do they've got to wash their hands they've got to uh, keep their distance from non-family household members They've got to wear a mask when they're uh, when they're in the shop and and uh, in confined spaces, um, and they've got to do everything they can to minimise their risk of contracting the virus. Uh, and they've got to, they've got to minimise the chance of, of them passing it on to anybody else. Now, there's no government with any legislation can legislate for how everyone should act in every circumstance. And and I think well, actually we. We're probably bringing in too much legislation, which is why it's so complicated. But can you imagine how complicated it would have to be if we were legislating for every eventuality of every situation? It's impossible. No, of course. And I think, by and large, the vast majority of people are doing all of those things that you just said uh, were what you should do if you're if applying common sense to the situation. You know, even those of us who don't particularly want to put a mask on to go into a shop will do it. By and large, if I'm travelling on public transport, I'll wear a mask because, you know, that's what people want you to do. And that's what the government wants you to do. It's fine. You know, but it has to stop with this kind of nitpicking and this nonsense and this kind of, you know, you can go into a bar with one person who you might know, uh, but you can't go into another bar with another person you don't know. You, do meet, know. you know, you can meet your father, but you can't meet your mother. You know, it's just ridiculous. You know, people are fed up with it. And really what Boris needs to do uh, is to lead. And he sounded more like a leader at the weekend, I think, than he has for a while. But it's easy to say it. Let's see him doing it. Well, the art of leadership is is not only being a leader. It's the fact that people want to follow you. Yeah. And people do want to follow uh, um, um, Boris. Um, but we've got to ensure that... And, and, and Boris is... 
he's a libertarian, really. I mean, well, so he keeps saying. He was criticised. <laughs> he was, criti- was, criti- was criticised at the beginning of this because he didn't act fast enough. Right. And I can assure you that's because two things that the virus, is, the, the the COVID pandemic, has caused is Boris is someone who likes the public to like him, as we all do, as politicians, as you and human beings. Uh, and um, and secondly, he hates to take away people's liberties and freedoms. And so the whole episode of, of COVID is is deeply upsetting for the Prime Minister himself on yes. a personal level. Well, I'm sure it is. But, you know, it's not as upsetting it is to people as uh, for people who haven't been able to, you know, put flowers on their children's grave because some council... Uh, Jobsworth has told them it's anti-COVID uh, or people who couldn't see their parents before they died or people who couldn't go uh, to a funeral because there was too many of them. You know, they're pretty miserable as well. So to be fair, I don't really care if Boris Johnson's miserable. I just want him to get on with it and fix things. Yes, but it, it, to do that, we need the cooperation, at least in the short term, of, of the public. And if if 80% of them are not going, uh, even when they get a public, I mean, you know, we, we've had a I won't say an esteemed uh, colleague of mine has been in the news at the weekend. Uh, well, I was going to ask you about well, Margaret that's Ferrier. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. How is she still in a job, by the way? How is there no process by which she could be removed, not least for putting people's lives in danger, supposedly, uh, in the Houses of Parliament? Because the rules we have currently are that you vote for a person who represents a party, so the votes are personal, uh, and they are going to serve as the MP for that constituency until the next general election, unless there's a recall. Um, personally, if, if you move party, I think you should, out of honour, have a, a by-election. It's nothing I would ever contemplate. Uh, I think you, you're voted in as a Conservative or Labour or mm. Liberal Democrat or SNP. If you then move to another party, I think you owe your constituents uh, um, a, 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 a chance to decide if they still want you as their representative. Um, it's it's a huge problem. But I think the recall system is probably the only way we could uh, remove uh, the uh, the lady in question. Um, but that's up to her own constituents. Um, I mean, clearly she's come under a lot of pressure. Uh, but it would appear that she's going to tough it out and keep drawing the salary for another three years at least. Well, she's going to have to do that in the teeth of an awful lot of criticism from me, and it might have to become a daily feature of the show if she's not willing to go anywhere. Andrew, listen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, talk to you soon. Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Um, he says the balance has to be struck. The, go- the government uh, has to ask people to cooperate with it. I get all that, but my question is, is Boris doing anything different? Is he, from what you saw this weekend, at least moving towards perhaps something other than telling everybody to go run away and hide? Because that ain't the answer. I'm telling you that. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Donald Trump could, we are told, be returning to the White House as early as later on today. So let us talk now to Sarah Elliott, Chair of Republicans Overseas in the UK. Sarah, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Quite a remarkable weekend, really, because, uh, you know, I awoke on, I guess, Friday morning to the news that uh, that Donald Trump and, and the First Lady had tested positive. Uh, I said then um, that I could see the end result of all of this as Donald Trump kind of emerging out of it, you know, with his fist raised in the air saying, you know, I've survived coronavirus. I'm the strongest man in America. You must vote for me and it will play well for him. It seems to me that's the way it's going. Um what do you make of, uh, of, of what's happening and, and how it's been over the weekend? Because a lot of people have been saying, well, you know, some of the doctors have been giving out sort of, you know, what you might call sort of information, misinformation. Nobody's quite sure what's going on. But, I mean, the fact is um, he's a remarkable individual. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, first of all, I, I'm very happy to see the president recovering so well. And and I really appreciate his videos to the American people because that really says it all. You can have as many press conferences with the doctors as possible, but to actually hear from the man himself and to see how well he's doing or how poorly he's doing, that speaks volumes. And uh, I'm really pleased to hear that he could be heading back to the White House today. I mean, were you as shocked as, as everybody else was when he was taken into Walter Reed? Because, you know, he seemed on Friday morning to be OK because we were told that he didn't seem to have any symptoms. Um, but then he was being taken to hospital. And I worried when I saw that video that he put out just before he went in that he had that kind of Boris Johnson look about him where just before he uh, became quite ill. 
Yeah, I mean, of course I was shocked, but I actually thought taking him to Walter Reed made a lot of sense. You want to be around the best team if anything starts to progress quickly. Plus, he has more freedom at Walter Reed because they have an entire suite dedicated to the president with conference rooms and um, technology and meeting facilities, which makes it much easier for him to keep the day-to-day -day operation going rather than being um, sequestered in the west wing of the white house he right. wouldn't have been able to go to the oval office for instance so um you know again all really positive development like you say he is the comeback king he loves being the underdog he loves beating the odds and and he's shown you know yesterday how appreciative he is of his supporters supporting him he's even commented on both sides of the aisle even though it has been shocking what some people on the left have been saying well, I saw that terrible, awful tweet by somebody called Zara Rahim, uh, who I believe used to be um, a spokesperson for Hillary Clinton and certainly was part of her campaign uh, back the last time around four years ago, basically wishing him to die. I mean, it's incredible. I, this is somebody who would have served in the Hillary Clinton administration. Um, she, you know, to me, she sounds like she hasn't gotten over the 2016 results. Yeah. Um, but that's a really clearly an inhumane and insensitive comment. Um, and I think it says a lot about our culture that people are willing to actually put that on social media. Somebody yeah. who has like a verified blue tick next to her name. She's, you know, she's somebody people follow and listen to. Um, yeah, it's, that was really disappointing. It really was. And Dominic West for me as well, because I used to like Dominic West as an actor and I thought mm. him, his performance in The Wire was amazing. You know, he seemed like an interesting guy. But to actually not only to say that he jumped for joy when he saw that the president had been infected with COVID-19, but to say it to Kate Garraway, whose own husband is actually practically uh, in a coma and has been for months. So insensitive and just horrible. Yeah, I mean, it, this is why the president actually gets support. It only helps the president when people on the left react this way, because nobody wants to give people like this actual power in government. If this is the way you gloat over an American citizen or the head of state who's ill, like imagine what you would do to the deplorables, for instance. Yeah. So th this whole um, this whole attitude from the left um, is really what pushes, you know, Trump supporters to be even more dedicated. And what we've seen in polling that's just come out um, yesterday is that um, the 65 plus crowd, which had given Biden more favorability, even in the Republican Party because of COVID, mm. seemed to now be coming home to roost with President Trump. Because I think there's a more humane factor here and, and he's been affected by COVID. Sure, absolutely right. And it's interesting for me as well how, how Biden now will play this because Biden's camp obviously pulled all their negative advertising. The fact that they did that immediately reveals the fact that they just have negative advertising, which doesn't exactly make them look brilliant. But he can't really ever bring that back now, can he? Well, it's, it's going to be it's a really delicate thing, right? Like the timing wise. Mm. I mean, Biden's whole campaign is to be anti-Trump, like yeah. pointing out Trump's weaknesses. And so he can't do that now for two weeks. He can't do it for 10 days to two weeks. I mean, that's what what, what is he going to point out that he's done in 47 years as a U.S. senator? Oh, I've shipped all the jobs over to China. Oh, I've given China mm. favored nation status. Oh, I, you know, my son, oh, he's really in with the Chinese too. You know, I mean, what are you going to point out um, that he can brag about over the next 10 days when it's all been about, look how horrible the orange man is. Yeah, absolutely right. And isn't it funny, right, how apparently Donald Trump is the only person in the whole world uh, who is its own fault that he's got COVID-19? You know, I've never seen um, any of the left being very keen on victim blaming before, but they seem to be very keen on blaming Donald Trump for getting coronavirus. It seems an extraordinary position. It, it, it is, especially when his staff tests for COVID on a daily basis right. and he's been leading the coronavirus task force. And he's also, um, you know, it should be noted, he's taking a drug that hasn't been um, in trial for very long, mm. remdesivir. Um, so he, you know, he's putting himself out there in many different ways. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And the coronavirus, um, you know, testing a new drug, being, um, and he's been out there with the American people throughout this entire pandemic. Kind of, there, there's an attitude in America, and I think some people here in Britain have this as well, where you, this, this isn't going away. This disease isn't going away. So we have to get on with our lives as much as normal as possible and take the precautions. But we have to keep life moving on, especially when the mortality rate is very low with this disease. And so I, I just um, I, I think he's actually showing the American people he has some courage and um, and that he's not going to let it get him down. And also, my, my final question to you, uh, which I put to people at the beginning of this show, all of these people who were saying uh, that it was reckless for him to uh, uh, to get in a car, in a motorcade, 18 cars, a uh, presidential motorcade, a hermetically sealed car, by the way, wearing a mask with a load of other people wearing masks. How is he putting anybody's life in danger? And if he is, surely that means that mask wearing isn't necessary because it doesn't do any good. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's so hypocritical. Plus, the, the the men and women who support the president in the form of the Secret Service or the motorcade, they put their lives on the line every single day for right. our head of state. So it's part of the job. Um, and of course, they were taking every single precaution that they can. But, um, you know, the president, you know, needs to be with the people and he wanted to show their support and he wanted to show them that he's not on death's door. And has any decision been taken yet on the second debate? It was due, I think, to happen uh, on the 14th. So, I mean, could that still happen? I think it could very well still happen. I know the president will want to do it uh, if he possibly can, as long as he's feeling fit. Uh, I think it's probably going to become a virtual event. I don't think they'll do it in person. Mm. Um, but I do suspect it will still go on. We have the vice presidential debate this week on the 7th, I believe, Wednesday. And it will be um, that holds really more importance this go around because both men are in their 70s. You know, Biden is looking a bit doddery. So it, it will be interesting to see um, how Kamala does with Mike Pence. Uh, she's not very popular. They picked her because she ticks an identity politics box. She only got 2% of the Democratic primary when she ran for president. She comes from a, one of the most left-wing states in the Union, California. So it, it will be really interesting to see how she performs up against Mike Pence. We also have to remember that we have the Amy Coney Barrett hearing still going forward in the U.S. Senate. That will be a big factor. Mm. The hearings begin on October 12th. The Judiciary Committee can vote by proxy. So this means that U.S. Senator Mike Lee of Utah, the Republican he, who contracted the virus recently, he can vote from home or send a proxy in to vote for him in the committee. And then it'll go to a floor vote by the end of the month. OK, exciting times indeed, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. Sarah Elliott, Chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Uh, we, of course, do wish Donald Trump well uh, and would be great, would it not, to see him uh, coming out of Walter Reed Hospital uh, in Maryland this afternoon and uh, heading back to the White House. You can just imagine the lefty tears, can you not? Weeping because of the fact that, you know, Donald Trump managed to survive. And I said this on Friday and I'll stand by it because lots of other people are now beginning to say it. It could play very well for him. It could make it even more unlikely that Joe Biden becomes the next president of the United States of America because Donald Trump is a success story. And if he continues to be a success story and his own health is a success, then people will vote for him. The Americans like good news. They don't like bad news. We don't like bad news here either at the Independent Republican Mike Graham. It is the home of common sense.
Mid-Mornings with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, slightly later than advertised, uh, because we overran with Nigel, the man who said that lockdowns work, even though they don't. Let's talk to Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. My question to Andrew Bridgen this morning was, has Boris Johnson, by um, admitting that he knows everybody hates him now, uh, actually done some repair to his reputation? Um, I'm assuming that you will say no. <laughs> well, no, there, there is a, there's supposed to be a sort of penitent strategy which politicians go through when they're in trouble, where they, 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 they act as if they're really sad about how terrible they are for a bit. Blair used to do this. Uh, on the advice of his mental valet, Alistair Campbell, from time to time, he'd appear and say woefully, yes, we made mistakes, we fouled up. Uh, and it worked for him, so it may work for Mr. Johnson. And the problem remains for those of us who don't think much of him as prime minister, that there is no coherent parliamentary opposition. And so that, and there isn't any coherent opposition to him in the Conservative Party either, as we learned last week when the Sir Graham Brady and his regiment all caved in so it's a bit difficult to know what to do, even though he is useless. There isn't anybody less useless available at the moment. <laughs> That's very true. I enjoyed your piece, actually, about how we kind of lost control of the political system in this country. And it is, has been for many years and many administrations not really representative of the people at all. Well, they used to think that it used to happen, although the two political parties had many faults uh, and no one's saying they were perfect. The great thing was that they more or less represented the old divide in the country, which existed, I suppose, up until the mid 60s, uh, which is basically a class divide. Uh, but since then, they've now, they don't represent the divide in the country, which is now something completely different. Uh, I, I'd sum it up in shorthand as the, the difference between Polly Toynbee of The Guardian and me. Mm. It's all about social and moral issues and education and marriage and and sex and, and, and things of that kind, not about nationalisation and trade unions anymore. And the two political parties are basically very much on the Polly Toynbee side. And they don't really have anything to fight each other against. So they have these phony uh, wrestling matches uh, every every few years in which they pretend to be opposed to each other and in which huge amounts of money are spent on public relations tricks of various kinds and one party or the other wins. I don't know whether you've ever read a fantastic book by Kingsley Amis called Girl 20. He's kind of been eclipsed by his son Martin yeah. in recent years. But Girl 20 contains, is very funny in many ways. It contains, amongst other things, the most brilliant account of a phony wrestling match that you have ever read in your life. <laughs> I've not uh, actually read the book. I do like Martin Amis, but I've not really... Well, this is much better than anything Martin Amis has ever written, but I think until it's over, you don't, you, you, you aren't sure whether it was funny or not. Mm. Uh, so the, the staging of it is so clever, but it's very, very funny, and it's, it's, it's very similar in some ways to British politics, a, a phony wrestling match in which everybody screams and groans and thumps and howls. Yeah. But actually, they're all pals. Yes. Well, I found it amusing when um, the Liberal Democrats sort of uh, finally came, sort of hit the buffers very, very, very slowly. And when they had their leadership contest, Ed Davey emerged triumphant. Uh, didn't seem really worth winning. When he then declared, I'm going to go around the country to decide what it is, uh, or to help me decide what it is I should be standing for, uh, because I don't know what I stand for. But if you tell me what you think I should stand for, I'll be more than happy to represent you. Yeah, I was amazed that the Liberal Democrats didn't parachute out of the coalition with David Cameron when they had the chance. Mm. Uh, the, 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 that was the moment at which they might have saved themselves as a party. But as soon as they were, went into the election, as, still as part of that coalition, they were doomed uh, because they, they had simply been destroyed by it. I don't think they'll ever recover. And it leaves a very interesting hole in British politics for a dissenting third party which nobody has tried to fill yet. Perhaps somebody will from a different direction. That might be some sign of hope. But at the moment, I see, as you know, none at all. No, indeed. Um, I mean, Lawrence Fox was on with Julie Hartley Brewer earlier on. He's trying to form a new party. Uh, I've spoken to David Curtin, who's a, a, a sort of Christian um, assembly member of the London Assembly. He's forming something called the Heritage Party, which is meant to be kind of traditional conservatism. I mean, you've still got Nigel Farage in the background. But, but as you've said before, Peter, it's very difficult for a third party to kind of break into the monopoly, isn't it? Well, one of the one of the big two parties has to die. Mm. Otherwise, you can set up a thing and call it a party, but it bears the same relation uh, as a Hornby Dublo train set does to the London North Eastern Railway, as mm. used to be. It's it's a toy until you can actually get large numbers of seats in Parliament, which only happens when well, the Liberal parties we know died in the nineteen twenties. Uh, the Tory party nearly died, should have died in twenty ten. 
uh, but was madly saved by the electorates who decided to rescue it from its d deserved doom. And uh, and also, what's more, to endorse David Cameron's Blairization of it. Mm. So the, the, the Tory party had become, under David Cameron, a Blairite party. And Tory voters rushed to vote to approve this. And so they, they, they saved it. If that hadn't happened, the Tory party would, in my view, have collapsed, been unable to raise funds or continue. And there would then have been a hole which could have been filled. Uh, it, what, how it would have been filled, no one can say, but there would certainly have been an opportunity uh, to construct a new party which actually stood for the more conservative-minded, patriotic people in this country who at the moment are entirely unrepresented. Yes, it does seem so. I mean, there are still a few people out there uh, who kind of steadfastly back Boris because he is the prime minister, because he is um, the only hope that they really have. Um, and that those of us who are being critical of them are being somehow disloyal. I don't consider myself to be a Tory. I don't even know what the Tories stand for anymore. Uh, I presume you probably don't consider yourself to be a Tory either. Um, no, I, I had a brief uh, brush with them some years ago. But it, it, what I discovered were two things. First of all, there was no politics at all in the Tory party. And secondly, um, members of the Tory party have less influence uh, over the Tory party than non-members, I think. There is absolutely no mechanism in that party uh, for members or supporters to have any impact at all on policy, which is decided entirely elsewhere by a completely impregnable clique. I even once they tried to get hold of a copy of the Constitution. I can't tell you how difficult it was. Uh, in, in many cases, they, they actually tried to charge people more than £100 for copies of it. You can't even discover how it's run. <laughs> it's an extraordinary body, but it, it, it has always been a machine for obtaining office for the sons of gentlemen. It has no fundamental political beliefs at all. And I, I'll, I'll say it again. The Tory party would guillotine the Queen in Trafalgar Square if it thought it would keep it in office. Yes, I think that's probably true. And I think many of us have seen that. I mean, I don't know what you made of the uh, the stories about Boris Johnson over the weekend. Tom Bow's book, obviously fascinating in its way. Boris Johnson's own interviewing uh, technique where he's sort of attempting to get back that, uh, um, uh, you know, that sort of friendly Boris that we all used to quite like, um, yeah. albeit that, you know, you probably thought he was always a bit of a buffoon. But, you know, the, the whole idea of this triple lockdown, which they're now talking about, because we might not be behaving ourselves, is absolute anathema to most people. Well, it's collected punishment and also for something we haven't done. Mm. I, the idea that the, the normal behaviour of normal human beings is itself some sort of sin or crime. Mm. Uh, it's a ludicrous fantasy, which only the weird utopian totalitarians could entertain. Uh, the, the secret of good government is basically to let men alone. And once you start interfering in the tiny detail of people's lives, when they can go out to eat, who they can see, whether, whether they can even visit their own relatives, you're doomed in terms of any kind of, 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 of proper free politics you're 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 inevitably you have to reach for the levers of totalitarianism and to start punishing the people i was reminded of, of bertolt brecht uh, the german communist playwright who after the workers rose against a worker state in 1953 uh, joked that uh, the government would have to elect a new people since the people who failed the government <laughs> yes indeed this is the situation that we're in You've mentioned that before, yeah. I mean, Sorry, it seems... I, I no, no, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning again. And But it seems as well that we're living in this kind of Alice in Wonderland um, kind of bubble, whereby I'm reading this morning in the front page of the Daily Mail the fiasco over the COVID count, whereby the test and trace system doesn't work, even if the tests are right, which they may not be, they can't trace anyone because they forget to do it or because they can't get in touch with them. You know, I mean, the whole thing just seems to be completely shambolic now. Testing has always been a bizarre fetish. And the idea that you could ever conceivably develop a bureaucracy and a surveillance system efficient enough to track down every contact and to isolate every person who was, who, who was producing the infection was absurd in the first place. The second idea that COVID itself was a disease so dangerous that this would be justified has, I think, now been shown comprehensively to be untrue. And COVID is very dangerous to some people, but not very dangerous to most. And, and the other thing is, how can you know, a population of roughly 70 million, what conceivable system could ever discover how many people in this country have a disease which in many cases has no symptoms? You can't do it. It's what all these, all these tests and trace figures are, are figures of how many people have been tested and traced. Mm. They tell you absolutely nothing else of any importance. A much more significant figure of that of hospital admissions, which I'm tracking every day. Uh, they are rising. There's no question of that. This is time of year when people do tend to get ill with respiratory 
illnesses. But two claims have been made, one by a BBC journalist who said that the hospital admissions were doubling roughly every fortnight, and the other by the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who said on the 18th of September that they, would, uh, they were doubling every seven to eight days. If you go to the Peter Hitchens blog, you'll see my own tracking of this shows that whatever is happening to hospital admissions, those claims are not borne out by the facts. And this is very similar, of course, to the witty Valance uh, ludicrous claims, which we which we discussed after they'd made them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Nonsensical. They're simply not borne out by anything that's happening. And the whole attempt, uh, which I think was probably designed to get the Coronavirus Act renewed in Parliament on September the 30th, the whole attempt uh, to get us to believe that a huge and devastating second wave was on the way is faltering because the facts simply don't back it up. But how much of this is covered? for instance, on the BBC. Not really very much. Well, no. I mean, I saw Carl Hennigan wrote a piece in The Spectator uh, over the course of the weekend as well, in which he was talking about following the evidence for hospital admissions. And he pointed out um, that actually many of these hospital admissions are not for COVID at all. And we're not really... And people seem to be very kind of laissez-faire in the journalistic world about what they believe when they're told it. You know, I mean, you and I, I think, grew up in the journalistic view uh, that don't believe anything anybody tells you because it's almost certainly to be uh, there's something wrong with it. Whereas now everybody just takes whatever any government minister says and goes with it. It is extraordinary, the level of acceptance of, of, of official statements. And it, it is one of the things which you learn in practice. I mean, obviously, when you set out, you, you, you're as credulous as anybody else. But after a while, you discover particularly if you have, for instance, seen a trial in progress, you discover that people simply don't always tell the truth. Right. Even when they do, they often don't tell the whole truth. And this is not it is not just criminal defendants we're talking about, it's the authorities. And the great motto, which I think we discussed at the beginning of this, Otto von Bismarck's never believe anything until it's been officially denied, right. uh, has been mine for many years. And I, I think that... I'm astonished at the credulity of so many of, of, of my colleagues. It continues to be the case that the public are just not being very well served. Newspapers are beginning to shift a bit. Yeah. Several are doing a lot better than they were, and thank heaven for that. Uh, but it's still particularly in broad. People who listen only to the BBC are still astonished. So, for instance, when somebody said, I was on a BBC programme yesterday, right? so it's happening a bit more than it did for the past six months. Good. And you were quite, but it's, it, I'd had a great famine. But uh, so, somebody else on the panel said uh, that she she wore a mask to protect others, said, in your opinion. Mm. And she was quite, I think, surprised by that. But so were listeners. What do you mean? They hadn't, they didn't even know that there is any dispute in, in science about whether masks are effective. They simply are unaware of it because... The BBC doesn't cover the controversy. And Matthew Paris in The Times wrote a very good piece on this on, on, on Saturday, which I commend to everybody, because Matthew Paris is, of course, pretty much a BBC liberal himself. Mm. He pointed out that even when he was campaigning for homosexual equality, when it was a very minority cause, the BBC gave him and his allies a fair crack. And he also recalled during the Falklands War, when Tam Diel was criticising the war, uh, even though the overwhelming majority of the population were in favour of the task force, the BBC covered what Town DL was saying, quite rightly, because where there is dissent, it should be covered. It, that dissent may be right, as it turned out, of course, to be the case most spectacularly in the Iraq war. Mm. Uh, dissent has to be covered, but increasingly it's not. It really isn't. But also, because of this news cycle that we currently seem to be uh, living through, something that's said by Matt Hancock yesterday is sort of immediately forgotten tomorrow. So nobody really goes back and says, well, hang on, the other day you said this. And looking at the uh, uh, the Andrew Neil tweet at the weekend as well of the UK daily cases, you know, we've got on the one hand the projection by Messrs Witty and Valance, which has come nowhere near the actual truth of the number of cases. I mean, they've admitted more or less that they made all that up uh, to scare people. Um, we are being told now that this is all about the collection of data. But so we're running government policy now on modelling, pure and simple. Yes, and what we're, the interesting thing is that you could, if you wanted to, produce economic statistics, and indeed statistics about people failed by what has become effectively the National COVID Service instead of the National Health Service, and you could project them out into the future, I think, much more realistically than these have been projected, yeah. and show terrible things to go. Anyway, just for instance, today, the closure of, the closure of a whole chain of cinemas. Yeah, 128 of them. Catastrophic. Will they open again? I, I have to say. I well, doubt I, it. I doubt it. Uh, the whole habit of cinema going has been destroyed. And people say it's been destroyed by COVID. Here's another thing the BBC does. 
It says life has been changed by COVID. It hasn't been changed by COVID. It's been changed by the government's response to COVID, mm. which which was a matter of choice, which they didn't need to take. And it, yet again, it, it, they, the, the assumption that nothing else could ever have been done, there was no alternative option. It is, it, and and when, when people used to say in the Thatcherite age, there is no alternative, I would always reply, whenever anybody tells you there is no alternative, what they mean is there is an alternative. Yeah. They don't want you to think about it. No, quite. And that alternative, I wonder, and let me ask you this final question, as I, as I always do each week. Um, you know, at what point does the British public just say enough is enough? We've had enough. If they, I think if they try and do another proper lockdown, people will actually revolt against that somehow. Well, I was in Soho on, on Saturday night and the, the streets were boiling with people. And I, it seemed to me that what was happening was the people in practice, in the running of their lives and uh, as, as far as they can do it, have already started not to believe what they're told. Uh, but the problem, with, and they will increasingly just ignore it. Mm. The problem with that is that unless you combine that with a political and scientific scepticism about the policies of the government, all that happens is increasing numbers of people get fined, uh, get confined to their homes, that the government rages that we're not behaving properly and demands that the people are replaced by a more compliant people, locks us in our homes, cancels Christmas or whatever else it plans to do. And until the, the actual issue of whether what the government did in March was right is properly aired, Politically and journalistically, we're stuck. However rebellious people may come, may, may, may become when they want to go out for a drink or a meal or simply want to go out, it won't solve the matter. It will just make the government more furious. And so although there will be practical but non-political revolt, what we need is a, is a political opposition which dismantles this thing and, and gets us back to something like normal life. OK. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much indeed. We'll talk to you next week. Peter Hitchens, columnist for the Mail on Sunday, of course. Um, very, very interesting words. Winter is coming, is what Neil Oliver told us on uh, Wednesday of last week. Uh, and, of course, the government will tell you uh, that bad things are coming if we don't behave. It's a very dangerous place to be, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Blue sky thinking is what we do here as well uh, at Talk Radio, and uh, the weather's definitely improving. What I would tell you uh, is that we are now in the homeschooling section because after 12.30 and the news, that's what we do. And today, I'm delighted to say, we're going to talk about phonics with Elena Furlong, video content creator at Twinkle, a former teacher as well. Elena, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Thank you for, uh, for, for coming on the show. Now, phonics is one of those subjects that... Um, can quite can quite cause quite big arguments. I remember having arguments with people about phonics um, when my <laughs> kids were learning how to how to speak and how to write, and when they were in primary school. Because you know, I can see how in some ways phonics is a great idea, but also in other ways, people who are more sort of traditional will say yes, but then they can't spell anything, and it's all very well. But you know, so tell us what phonics is first of all. Sure, um, it's the study of sounds. So it's about helping children to understand that certain letters make certain sounds. Um, and then, as you say, they use this knowledge to help them in their reading and their writing. Right. And when was it sort of um, invented, I suppose, would be the first question. Um, it's been a study for a long time. Um, I couldn't tell you the exact date that it came into education, but for, for sure I was being taught in the 90s and it wasn't being used then. Right. So it is, as you say, it's more of a recent way of teaching, but mm. it's shown to um, be very beneficial for children because it helps them to read independently. And that's the big thing that we want children to be able to do. And I guess the big thing that you also really want children to do is just to be encouraged to read as well, right? Absolutely. It's it's so important um, for, you know, all sorts of facets of the curriculum as well. I think the better you read, the better you write as well. Um, so it's really important to kind of foster that enjoyment of reading from an early age, if you can. Yeah. I mean, it's quite difficult to learn English, isn't it? It's one of the more difficult languages <laughs> I would have thought in the entire world. But but yeah. I mean, I'm always incredibly in awe of, of people who don't speak English as a, as a first language, actually learning how to speak it. It is, and the, the pronunciation of words is uh, very varied in English too. Um, and certainly in phonics, children are also taught that these are the rules, but there are also, there are also exceptions to these rules too. Right. right. And I mean, as far as the way that phonics is taught, is much of it sort of um, using your ears more than it is using, you know, writing and, and, and using, you know, actual reading technologies? 
Yeah, it certainly starts off with using your ears. Um, it's broken down into certain phases. Um, phase one starts from very early on, really before children go to school, and it's about listening um, and, and training, you know, that sort of hearing, which we all take it for granted, but when you're starting off with that skill, it can be, uh, you know, a bit tricky. Right. Uh, and then as they move through um, reception in year one, they start to uh, associate different sounds with different letters. Right. So it comes more to the reading side of things. Okay. And I mean, if you've gone from learning about sounds to actually reading words on a page, is there mm. a sort of scientific um, connection there between those two things? For example, if you're teaching somebody that pH sounds like a particular, you know, sounds like an F, when they see that, do they immediately then know that it sounds like an F? Exactly right. Yes. So um, within the phases, they're taught, I think there are about 44 different sort of sounds in the English language. Mm. So those sounds are broken up into phases. Um, once children can identify the sounds that letters make, they'll be encouraged to uh, say, for example, um, start with very simple. Um, they'll be able to read each of those sounds, if you like, and then we call it blending together mm. to read each sound after another and blend it into the word that is being that's written down. Right. And I'm seeing that there's lots of different types of phonics, like analytical phonics, synthetic phonics, analogy phonics. What's the difference? Um, it's, it's all to do with how technical uh, and the way that it's taught. So, for instance, in synthetic phonics, uh, children are taught very early on about the different sounds that letters can make. So uh, you have the, for example, um, EA can be E as in, uh, you know, meat yeah. and also eh as in head so um it's a, it's referring to the sort of structure and the order that these sounds are taught but right. ultimately it's just a, a program of study the difference is the right. what they're actually learning is is similar <laughs> and what about conversation um in terms of children's sort of knowledge I mean, I've always believed in, I mean, it's hard to shut me up really, but I mean, I talk to my children an awful lot um, and I use a lot of words and, you know, as a result, they, they sort of pick up on the fact that language is an interesting thing and they, they talk, I mean, the more they talk, so I'm saying the better. I, I absolutely think so, yeah. And I've always sort of been an advocate of, uh, you know, sort of not um, simplifying language around children. Yeah. I don't think that they'll hear a word and think, oh, no, that's too scary. I don't want to use that. They like being introduced to more advanced vocabulary. And it's amazing how easily they pick up on it, too. And they'll start to use it in their own speech and hopefully their own writing as well. Yeah, because, um, I mean, people say that up until the age of about six, I think it is, I once went to a, one of those schools in America where they took two and three year old kids and taught them how to play the violin and taught them how to read Japanese and stuff and and I remember talking to the guy there who said that you're li literally at the age up to five or six you're like a sponge you can pretty much Absolutely. learn almost anything and it gets harder as you get older yeah it does I've taught in reception classes before and it's amazing how like a sponge they are they just want to learn everything that they possibly can so mm. it's um giving the opportunity to do that is, is a fantastic thing right. to do and if parents are kind of baffled by all of this, because I know, as I said, some people don't quite get it. They don't quite understand why phonics is being used and they don't know whether it's a good idea or not. Um, what would you recommend that they do? Is there anywhere they can go and look at how it works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at Twinkle, we have uh, a lot of resources on our website. We also have a Twinkle wiki um, where you can actually look up, um, you know, there's a lot of jargon with phonics, um, mm. but you can look up sort of words that you might hear, even your children coming home with. Um, I had year one children talking about split diagraphs um, and, you know, it's a lot of technical language, but there is a Twinkle wiki that you can have a look at. Um, there's a lot of information out there on the internet as well. Um, YouTube videos to, to look at the sounds that, that your children might be learning at different stages um so there is a lot of information out there but i think understanding the jargon is a is a good first step for sure okay definitely well elena thank you very much indeed elena furlong video content creator at twinkle former teacher talking about phonics if you're a parent you'll know all about phonics probably because one of your kids will have been taught it at some point or other and there is a sort of row that sometimes exists and goes on uh, between those more traditional teaching methods uh, and the more modern ones and i'm not sure uh, what side of that particular argument that you are on uh, but by all means you can join an argument and a debate and have one with me talk radio across the uk online on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.